Chapter Seven, Section Three of the History of Mr. Polly by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Seven, Section Three. Mr. Polly's intercourse with all his fellow tradesmen was tarnished sooner or later by some such adverse incident, until not a friend remained to him and loneliness made even the shop-door terrible. Shops bankrupted all about him, and fresh people came and new acquaintances sprang up, but sooner or later a discord was inevitable. The tension under which these badly fed, poorly housed, bored and bothered neighbours lived made it inevitable. The mere fact that Mr. Polly had to see them every day, that there was no getting away from them, was in itself sufficient to make them almost unendurable to his fretfully active mind. Among other shopkeepers in the high street there was Chuffles the grocer, a small, hairy, silently intent polygamist, who was given rough music by the youth of the neighbourhood because of a scandal about his wife's sister, who was nevertheless totally uninteresting. And Tonks, the second grocer, an old man with an older, very enfeebled wife, both submerged by piety. Tonks went bankrupt, and was succeeded by a branch of the National Provision Company, with a young manager exactly like a fox, except that he barked. The toy and sweetstuff shop was kept by an old woman of repellent manners, and so was the little fish-shop at the end of the street. The Berlin wool-shop, having gone bankrupt, became a newspaper-shop, then fell to a haberdasher in consumption, and, finally, to a stationer. The three shops at the end of the street wallowed in and out of insolvency in the hands of a bicycle repairer and dealer, a gramophone dealer, a tobacconist, a sixpenny-halfpenny bazaar-keeper, a shoemaker, a greengrocer, and the exploiter of a cinematograph peep-show. But none of them supplied friendship to Mr. Polly. These adventurers in commerce were all more or less distraught souls, driving without intelligible comment before the gale of fate. The two milkmen of Fishbourne were brothers who had quarrelled about their father's will, and started in opposition to each other. One was stone-deaf, and no use to Mr. Polly, and the other was a sporting man, with a natural dread of epithet, who sided with hinks. So it was, all about him, on every hand, it seemed, were uncongenial people, uninteresting people, or people who conceived the deepest distrust and hostility towards him, a magic circle of suspicious, preoccupied, and dehumanized humanity. So the poison in his system poisoned the world without. But Boomer, the wine-merchant, and Tashingford, the chemist, it be noted, were fraught with pride, and held themselves to be a cut above Mr. Polly. They never quarrelled with him preferring to bear themselves from the outset as though they had already done so. 
As his internal malady grew upon Mr. Polly, and he became more and more of a battleground of fermenting foods and warring juices, he came to hate the very sight, as people say, of every one of these neighbours. They were every day and all the days just the same, echoing his own stagnation. They pained him all round the top and back of his head. They made his legs and arms weary and spiritless. The air was tasteless by reason of them. He lost his human kindliness. In the afternoon he would hover in the shop, bored to death with his business and his home and Miriam, and yet afraid to go out because of his inflamed and magnified dislike and dread of these neighbours. He could not bring himself to go out and run the gauntlet of the observant windows and the cold estranged eyes. One of his last friendships was with Rusper, the ironmonger. Rusper took over Worthington's shop about three years after Mr. Polly opened. He was a tall, lean, nervous, convulsive man with an upturned, back-thrown, oval head who read newspapers and the Review of Reviews assiduously, had belonged to a literary society somewhere once, and had some defect of the palate that at first gave his lightest word a charm and interest for Mr. Polly. It caused a peculiar clicking sound, as though he had something between a giggle and a gas-meter at work in his neck. His literary admirations were not precisely Mr. Polly's literary admirations. He thought books were written to enshrine great thoughts, and that art was pedagogy in fancy dress. He had no sense of phrase or epithet or richness of texture, but still he knew there were books, and he was full of large, windy ideas of the sort he called modern thought, and he seemed needlessly and helplessly concerned about the welfare of the race. Mr. Polly would dream about that at nights. It seemed to that undesirable mind of his that Rusper's head was the most egg-shaped head he had ever seen. The similarity weighed upon him, and when he found an argument growing warm with Rusper, he would say, "'Boil it some more, old man, boil it harder,' or six minutes at least.' Allusions Rusper could never make head nor tail of, and got at last to disregard as a part of Mr. Polly's general eccentricity. For a long time that little tendency threw no shadow over their intercourse, but it contained within it the seeds of an ultimate disruption. Often during the days of this friendship Mr. Polly would leave his shop and walk over to Mr. Rusper's establishment and stand in his doorway and inquire, "'Well, old man, how's the mind of the age working?' and get quite an hour of it and sometimes Mr. Rusper would come into the outfitter's shop with, "'Heard the latest?' and spend the rest of the morning. Then Mr. Rusper married, and he married, very inconsiderately, a woman who was totally uninteresting to Mr. Polly, 
a coolness grew between them from the first intimation of her advent. Mr. Polly couldn't help thinking, when he saw her, that she drew her hair back from her forehead a great deal too tightly, and that her elbows were angular. His desire not to mention these things in the apt terms that welled up so richly in his mind made him awkward in her presence, and that gave her an impression that he was hiding some guilty secret from her. She decided he must have a bad influence upon her husband, and she made it a point to appear whenever she heard him talking to Rusper. One day they became a little heated about the German peril. "'I lay they'll invade us,' said Rusper. "'Not a bit of it. William's not these acacious sort.' "'You'll see, old man.' "'Just what I shan't do. "'Before five years are out.' "'Not it.' "'Yes.' "'No.' "'Yes.' "'I'll boil it hard,' said Mr. Polly. And then he looked up and saw Mrs. Rusper standing behind the counter, half hidden by a trophy of spades and garden shears and a knife-cleaning machine, and by her expression he knew instantly that she understood. The conversation paled and presently Mr. Polly withdrew. After that, estrangement increased steadily. Mr. Rusper ceased altogether to come over to the outfitters, and Mr. Polly called upon the ironmonger only with the completest air of casualness. And everything they said to each other led now to flat contradiction and raised voices. Rusper had been warned in vague and alarming terms that Mr. Polly insulted and made game of him. He couldn't discover exactly where, and so it appeared to him that every word of Mr. Polly's might be an insult, meriting his resentment, meriting it none the less because it was masked and cloaked. Soon Mr. Polly's calls upon Mr. Rusper ceased also and then Mr. Rusper, pursuing incomprehensible lines of thought, became afflicted with a specialised short-sightedness that applied only to Mr. Polly. He would look in other directions when Mr. Polly appeared, and his large oval face assumed an expression of conscious serenity and deliberate happy unawareness that would have maddened a far less irritable person than Mr. Polly. It evoked a strong desire to mock and ape, and produced in his throat a cough of singular scornfulness, more particularly when Mr. Rusper also assisted with an assumed unconsciousness that was all his own. Then, one day, Mr. Polly had a bicycle accident. His bicycle was now very old and it is one of the concomitants of a bicycle's senility that its free wheel should one day obstinately cease to be free. It corresponds to that epoch in human decay when an old gentleman loses an incisor tooth. It happened just as Mr. Polly was approaching Mr. Rusper's shop, and the untoward chance of a motor-car trying to pass a wagon on the wrong side 
gave Mr. Polly no choice but to get on the pavement and dismount. He was always accustomed to take his time and step off his left pedal at its lowest point, but the jamming of the free-wheel gear made that lowest moment a transitory one, and the pedal was lifting his foot for another revolution before he realised what had happened. Before he could dismount according to his habit, the pedal had to make a revolution, and before it could make a revolution, Mr. Polly found himself among the various sonorous things with which Mr. Rusper adorned the front of his shop—zinc dustbins, household pails, lawn-mowers, rakes, spades, and all manner of clattering things. Before he got among them he had one of those agonizing moments of helpless wrath and suspense that seemed to last ages, in which one seems to perceive everything and think of nothing but words that are better forgotten. He sent a column of pails thundering across the doorway, and dismounted with one foot in a sanitary dustbin amidst an enormous uproar of falling ironmongery. "'Put all over the place!' he cried, and found Mr. Rusper emerging from his shop with the large tranquillities of his countenance puckered to anger, like the frowns in the brow of a reefing sail. He gesticulated speechlessly for a moment. "'Jadoin!' he said at last. "'Tin man-traps!' said Mr. Polly. "'Jadoin! Dressing all over the pavement as though the blessed town belonged to you!' And Mr. Polly, in attempting a dignified movement, realised his entanglement with the dustbin for the first time. With a low, embittering expression, he kicked his foot about in it for a moment very noisily, and finally sent it thundering to the curb. On its way it struck a pail or so. Then Mr. Polly picked up his bicycle and proposed to resume his homeward way. But the hand of Mr. Rusper arrested him. Put, put, put all back. Put back yourself. You, you got put back. Get out of the way. Mr. Rusper laid one hand on the bicycle handle, and the other gripped Mr. Polly's collar urgently, whereupon Mr. Polly said, Let go! And again, Do you hear? Let go! And then drove his elbow with considerable force into the region of Mr. Rusper's midriff, whereupon Mr. Rusper, with a loud impassioned cry resembling, Whoa! More than any other a combination of letters, released the bicycle handle, seized Mr. Polly by the cap and hair, and bore his head and shoulders downward. Thereat Mr. Polly, emitting such words as everyone knows and nobody prints, butted his utmost into the concavity of Mr. Rusper, entwined a leg about him, and, after terrific moments of swaying instability, fell headlong beneath him amidst the bicycles and pails. There, on the pavement, these inexpert children of a Pacific age, untrained in arms and uninured to violence, abandoned themselves to amateurish and absurd efforts to injure and hurt one another, of which the most palpable consequence were dusty backs, ruffled hair, and torn and twisted collars. Mr. Polly, by accident, 
got his finger into Mr. Rusper's mouth, and strove earnestly for some time to prolong that aperture in the direction of Mr. Rusper's ear, before it occurred to Mr. Rusper to bite him, and even then he didn't bite very hard, while Mr. Rusper concentrated his mind almost entirely on an effort to rub Mr. Polly's face on the pavement, and their positions bristled with chances of the deadliest sort. They didn't from first to last draw blood. Then it seemed to each of them that the other had become endowed with many hands and several voices and great accessions of strength. They submitted to fate and ceased to struggle. They found themselves torn apart and held up by outwardly scandalised and inwardly delighted neighbours, and invited to explain what it was all about. "'I've got to put them all back,' panted Mr. Rusper, in the expert grasp of Hinks. "'Merely asked him to put them back.' Mr. Polly was under restraint of little Clamp of the toy-shop, who was holding his hands in a complex and uncomfortable manner that he afterwards explained to Wintershed was a combination of something romantic called jiu-jitsu and something less romantic called the police grip. "'Piles!' explained Mr. Polly, in breathless fragments. "'All over the road! Piles bungs up the streets with his piles! Look at em! Deliberately rode into my goods, constantly annoying me," said Mr. Rusper. They were both tremendously earnest and reasonable in their manner. They wished everyone to regard them as responsible and intellectual men acting for the love of right and the enduring good of the world. They felt they must treat this business as a profoundly and publicly significant affair. They wanted to explain and orate and show the entire necessity of everything they had done. Mr. Polly was convinced that he had never been so absolutely correct in all his life as when he planted his foot in the sanitary dustbin, and Mr. Rusper considered his clutch at Mr. Polly's hair as one of the faultless impulses in an otherwise undistinguished career but it was clear in their minds that they might easily become ridiculous if they were not careful, if for a second they stepped over the edge of the high spirit and pitiless dignity they had hitherto maintained. At any cost, they perceived, they must not become ridiculous. Mr. Chuffles, the scandalous grocer, joined the throng about the principal combatants, mutely as became an outcast, and with a sad, distressed, helpful expression, picked up Mr. Polly's bicycle. Gamble's summer errand-boy, moved by example, restored the dustbin and pails to their self-respect. "'E, he ought pick em up,' protested Mr. Rusper. "'What's it all about?' said Mr. Hinks for the third time, shaking Mr. Rusper gently. "'Has he been calling you names?' "'Simply ran into his piles as any one might,' said Mr. Polly, "'and out he comes and scrags me.' "'Assault!' said Mr. Rusper. "'He assaulted me,' said Mr. Polly. "'Jumped into my dustbin,' said Mr. Rusper. "'That assault, or isn't it?' 
"'You better drop it,' said Mr. Hinks. "'Great pity they can't behave better, both of them,' said Mr. Chuffles, glad for once to find himself morally unassailable. "'Anyone see it begin?' said Mr. Wintershed. "'I was in the shop,' said Mrs. Rusper, suddenly from the doorstep, piercing the little group of men and boys with the sharp horror of an unexpected woman's voice. "'If a witness is wanted, I suppose I've got a tongue. I suppose I've got a voice in seeing my own husband injured. My husband went out and spoke to Mr. Polly, who was jumping off his bicycle all among our pails and things, and immediately he butted him in the stomach. Immediately, most savagely, butted him. Just after his dinner, too, and him far from strong. I could have screamed, but Rusper caught hold of him right away. I will say that for Rusper. I'm going, said Mr. Polly suddenly, releasing himself from the Anglo-Japanese grip and holding out his hands for his bicycle. Teach you to leave things alone, said Mr. Rusper, with an air of one who has given a lesson. The testimony of Mrs. Rusper continued relentlessly in the background. You'll hear from me through a summons, said Mr. Polly, preparing to wheel his bicycle. Me too, said Mr. Rusper. Someone handed Mr. Polly a collar. This yours? Mr. Polly investigated his neck. I suppose it is. Anyone seen a tie? A small boy produced a grimy strip of spotted blue silk. Human life isn't safe with you, said Mr. Polly as a parting shot. Yours isn't, said Mr. Rusper. And they got small satisfaction out of the bench, which refused altogether to perceive the relentless correctitude of the behaviour of either party, and reprove the eagerness of Mrs. Rusper, speaking to her gently, firmly but exasperatingly, as, My good woman, and telling her to answer the question, answer the question. Seems to me, said the chairman, when binding them over to keep the peace, you can't behave like respectable tradesmen. Seems a great pity. Bad example to the young and all that. Don't do any good to the town. Don't do any good to yourselves. Don't do any manner of good to have all the tradesmen in the place scrapping about the pavement of an afternoon. Think we're letting you off easily this time, and hope it will be a warning to you. Don't expect men of your position to come up before us. Very regrettable affair, eh? He addressed the latter inquiry to his two colleagues. Oh, exactly, exactly, said the colleague to the right. Uh, said Mr. Rusper. But the disgust that overshadowed Mr. Polly's being as he sat upon the stile had other and profounder justification than his quarrel with Rusper and the indignity of appearing before the county bench. He was, for the first time in his business career, short with his rent for the approaching quarter-day, and so far as he could trust his own bandling of figures, he was sixty or seventy pounds on the wrong side of solvency. And that 
was the outcome of fifteen years of passive endurance of dullness throughout the very best years of his life. What would Miriam say when she learned this, and was invited to face the prospect of exile, heaven knows what sort of exile, from their present home? She would grumble and scold, and become limply unhelpful, he knew, and none the less so because he could not help things. She would say he ought to have worked harder, and a hundred such exasperating, pointless things. Such thoughts as these require no aid from undigested cold pork and cold potatoes and pickles to darken the soul, and with these aids his soul was black indeed. "'Might as well have a bit of a walk,' said Mr. Polly at last, after nearly intolerable meditations, and sat round and put a leg over the stile. He remained still for some time before he brought over the other leg. "'Kill myself,' he murmured at last. It was an idea that came back to his mind nowadays with a continually increasing attractiveness, more particularly after meals. Life, he felt, had no further happiness to offer him. He hated Miriam, and there was no getting away from her whatever may betide, and for the rest there was toil and struggle, toil and struggle, with a failing heart and dwindling courage to sustain that dreary duologue. "'Life's insured,' said Mr. Polly. "'Place is insured. I don't see as it does any harm to her or any one.' He stuck his hands in his pockets. "'Needn't hurt much,' he said. He began to elaborate a plan. He found it quite interesting, elaborating his plan. His countenance became less miserable, and his pace quickened. "'There is nothing so good in all the world for melancholia as walking, and the exercise of the imagination in planning something presently to be done, and soon the wrathful wretchedness had vanished from Mr. Polly's face. He would have to do the thing secretly and elaborately, because otherwise there might be difficulties about the life insurance. He began to scheme how he could circumvent that difficulty. He took a long walk, for after all, what is the good of hurrying back to shop when you're not only insolvent, but very soon to die. His dinner and the east wind lost their sinister hold upon his soul, and when at last he came back along the Fishbourne High Street, his face was unusually bright, and the craving hunger of the dyspeptic was returning. So he went into the grocer's, and bought a ruddily decorated tin of brightly pink fish-like substance, known as deep-sea salmon. This he was resolved to consume regardless of cost, with vinegar and salt and pepper, as a relish to his supper. He did, and since he and Miriam rarely talked, and Miriam thought honour and his recent behaviour demanded a hostile silence, he ate fast and copiously, and soon gloomily. 
he ate alone, for she refrained to mark her sense of his extravagance. Then he prowled into the high street for a time, thought it an infernal place, tried his pipe and found it foul and bitter, and retired wearily to bed. He slept for an hour or so, and then woke up to the contemplation of Miriam's hunched back and the riddle of life. And this bright, attractive idea of ending for ever and ever and ever all the things that were locking him in, this bright idea that shone like a baleful star above all the reek and darkness of his misery. End of chapter 7